0: In his 2015 book, We Cannot Be Silent, Dr. R. Albert Moeller Jr. writes The religious liberty challenge we now face consigns every believer, every religious institution, and every congregation in the arena of conflict where erotic liberty and religious liberty now clash. If that is true, if every believer has been consigned to live in such an arena, then how should we live? It may interest you to know that the subtitle to Dr. Moeller's useful little book is this Speaking Truth to a Culture Redefining Sex, Marriage, and the Very Meaning of Right and Wrong. In his subtitle, Dr. Moeller gives away how he thinks we should live in such an arena one aspect to life in this world is speaking truth to this world. So let's be honest. Sometimes, as believers, we're a bit shy about the truth we possess. Sometimes we are ashamed and afraid of the truth that we possess. Sometimes we're guilty of soft-peddling the truth. But we know that is neither loving nor obedient and a sheepishness about the truth does not communicate our confidence in the power of God to plant his truth in the hearts of an unbelieving world and change sinners sinners like us for his glory how should we live in a world that is hostile to the truth of God hostile to Christian love and hostile to the commandments of God In other words, how should we live in a world that has been this way since Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind in Adam? This morning, as we turn to study the second letter of John, the Apostle John tells us how we should live. John tells us that we should walk in truth and live in love by keeping the commandments of God. And if you were uh, in the discipleship hour this morning and now used to thinking about the Bible in terms of story, uh, how, does, how does 2 John fit into the Bible in terms of the story? Well, it tells us what a restored humanity is to look like as it lives out its relationship with God. That's what 2 John teaches us. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 John. It's a short little letter. You may pass over it. Uh, So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you can find it on page 1025, 1025. And while you're turning there, let me offer a little bit of background on this letter. Uh, You'll notice that the editors of the the ESV Bible and other translations have provided the heading at the beginning of the book. There in the ESV, it says the second letter of John. Uh, That seems uh, like a very reasonable heading. After all, we have... In the very first verse, uh, the author calling himself the elder, stating that he's addressing this letter to the elect lady and her children. That sounds very much like a letter in the first century uh, and in our own day. Uh, Conservative scholarship has largely agreed that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were most likely written after John's gospel. uh, Sometime in the late 80s or early 90s in the first century, uh, that would have been toward the end of John's life. John may have been somewhere around uh, 90, in his 90s. Uh, that could be one of the reasons that John calls himself the elder there in verse 1. First, John uh, was what was known as a, a circular letter, uh, which means that it was a letter that was meant to be passed around to various churches. It was to make the, the circuit of, of churches, read in the churches and, and heard. Um, and, and uh, that, that was probably in and around John's particular area as an apostle, which was probably the, the, the region of Ephesus, in and around Ephesus. Uh, given that 2 John does not give a specific name like 3 John, uh, it could be that Second John was also a circular letter. Now, I, I've been kind of saying all along uh, that John wrote this letter, so, so why say anything further? Well, um, John doesn't actually say that he wrote this letter. But then John doesn't say that he wrote his gospel either. Uh, But he gives us clues to let us know that he wrote his gospel. John's a a pretty humble man, uh, and it seems that he likes to kind of fade into the background. Christians have long recognized John as the author of this work for several reasons. chief among them is that uh, while we do not have John's name explicitly mentioned in the letter, the language is very similar to the language of the gospel of John, 1 John and 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation, uh, over the course of uh, church history, uh, there has been very little doubt that the author of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation is also the author of these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, so what's the what's the purpose of, of this letter? Well, I think there are three. three. Uh, John wrote this letter to make a request, to give a command, and to provide some practical instruction. In short, John requested that his readers love one another. He commanded them to watch themselves, and he instructed them on how to respond to false teachers who were requesting hospitality. Uh, That is what this little letter is about. It is about loving others, loving God's Son, and loving God's truth. Originally, we were going to study this letter in one fell swoop, but in thinking through this letter, and in particular the Christological heresy that John addresses in this letter, I wanted to take the time needed to adequately digest this letter. This week we're going to consider John's greeting and John's requests. And next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up the second half of this letter where John addresses how believers ought to respond to false teachers, and in particular, a Christological heresy. Specifically, we're going to be considering next week the person of Jesus Christ. In preparation for that, you, you may want to pick up a copy of. Uh, there's only five of them left, but uh, they want to pick up a copy of this little pamphlet called "The Word Made Flesh." It's in the lobby. It's in uh, one of those racks, kind of on the right-hand side. If you're walking out, there's five of them there. Uh, this is a statement on Christology uh, put out by Ligonier Ministries. It's a it's a helpful little pamphlet on the person of Jesus Christ, and I'd encourage you to read that because that's a lot of what we're going to think about next week. For now, uh, let's turn and study the first six verses of John's second letter. Uh, We're going to study these verses in two sections. First, John's greeting, and second, John's request. John's greeting and John's request. Let's take a look at, at John's greeting there in verses 1 to 3. And, and as we prepare to read these verses, uh, let me say this. So often, the greetings in the New Testament letters, in these greetings, the author of, of this letter is trying to kind of show his hand a little bit. What's he concerned about that he wants to communicate? Well, that is uh, he, John here. He's giving away the central themes of his letter, these central concerns. So, Let me encourage you to look and listen closely and see if you can pick up on what John is really concerned to communicate. Uh, Let me read 2 John, verses 1 to 3. John writes, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace... Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So did you hear John's concerns for this letter? He seems to be concerned about truth, doesn't he? Uh, He mentions, John mentions the word truth four times in these short verses. He mentions loving in truth, knowing the truth, loving because of truth and love paired with truth. I wonder if you heard just another theme that comes up, comes out of these verses as I was citing John's references to truth. John's not only concerned about truth, but he's also concerned about love. More specifically, I think we can say that John is concerned about truth's relationship to love and love's relationship to the truth. But I'm getting ahead of myself as we've already passed over John's reference to himself and his address to his readers. John, you'll see there he calls himself the elder. John's well on in age at this point. But another reason that John may refer to himself as the elder is that he has served the church as a, as a teacher and a shepherd. You know, from Acts chapter 20 and from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, that an elder is an officially recognized teacher in the church. Is, is John referring to his age or his office? I don't think there's any real reason that we actually need to decide between the two. Whether John means to call to mind his age or his office, referring to himself as the elder actually reveals John's humility. He is a duly ordained apostle of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he does not lord any of that over his readers. John, as we'll see in this letter, uses his authority... In a loving and careful manner. It was simply enough for him to refer to himself as the elder. As and those receiving this letter would have responded with joy that John had written them. Who is the them though? Who is the audience that John has written? Who is this letter addressed to? It's addressed to the elect lady and her children. And there are two possibilities here. Uh, one would be that John is referring to a particular woman and her children. Another possibility is that John is addressing the church and a, a particular local church at that. Uh, both are quite natural readings. In Paul and Peter's epistles, the, the church is referred to in feminine language. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls the church the bride of Christ. And in 1 uh, Peter 5, Peter refers to the church as uh, the woman who is in Babylon. And in his first letter, John referred to Christians as children of God. And the good news for us is that whether John is addressing an individual woman or a local church, the message of this letter does not change. For my part, I'm persuaded that John is addressing a local church, a particular local church. I think if John wished to address a particular individual woman, uh, he would have done so. John wrote directly to Gaius in uh, 3 John, and this letter, should it have been intended to reach a particular woman, I think John would have addressed her by name. So for my part, I think that when John addressed the elect lady and her children, I think that John's addressing a local congregation, her members. And that's going to shape some of, some of how we think through application and exhortations in this letter. Notice when John greeted this church, he expressed his love for her. He said that he loved her in the truth. It's a peculiar way of, of expressing your love, isn't it? Loving her in the truth. Perhaps John expresses his love in this way because he's beginning to say something about the connection between truth and love. What is more is that John says he is not the only one who loves the church in the truth. He says that all who know the truth love the elect lady and her children in the truth. I think that what John is saying is that he loves the church, and all believers love the church, because the church loves the truth. John loves the church, and all believers love the truth. Because the church loves the truth. Love of the truth fans the flame of love for those who love the truth. Perhaps that's what John's trying to express there in verse 2, you'll notice. John loves, all Christians love, because truth cultivates love. What or who is the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever? might I suggest to you that it's Jesus. Remember Jesus' words from John's Gospel. Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 28 verse 20, He said that He would be with His people to the very end of the age. John could very well be alluding to Jesus when he states that He loves the church because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. In just a a few short sentences, John will start reminding the church of the need to abide in the teaching of Jesus, to abide in the truth. It could be that John is saying, I love you in Jesus, and all who love Jesus love you because you love Jesus. Now let's pause here and think about our own lives in relationship to these verses. Do you love like John loves? John loves the people of God. Why? Because Jesus lives in John by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus loves God's people. Do you love God's people? You don't have to like them, but you've got to love them. Do you delight to see them? Do you delight to hear about their joys? Do you grieve with them in their sorrows? Are you concerned about them when they're downcast? Do you love God's people? In his first letter, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, we read, whoever loves his brother, there John's referring to Christians, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You know, it's, it's deeply concerning when someone professes to be in Christ and to love Christ, but does not love the people that Christ loves. A true Christian cannot be long separated from the people of God. Is there evidence of love for God's people in your life? And not just Christians in general, but members of this particular local church or or the local church that you're a member of. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or ask how you can pray for them? Do you check in on them throughout the week? Do you carve out time to be with them? These should all be normal things occurring in our lives as Christians. They're not extraordinary things, but normal things. Another point of application that I want us to explore is this. Do we know the truth? John says that that all who know the truth. So the truth must be known. All who love the truth love this church whom he's writing to. There's a truth to be known. And John, he's really speaking here at a foundational level. He's speaking about the truth of the gospel. That's going to be worked out in this letter. Those of you who... uh, have joined this church or who are in the process of joining this church have gone through uh, a membership interview you'll you'll know that part of the process of joining this church is that we ask you if you know the truth so in in a in our membership interview we ask you something like you know in a, in a minute or so can you tell me what is the good news of Jesus Christ just you know the highlights of the gospel truth what, what is the good news of Jesus Christ and in that question we're trying to ask you in a tactful way do you know the truth about Jesus? Now, Christian, I know that your uh, membership interview here, you, you who are members, I know that your membership interview here was one of the highlights of your life. So I'm sure that you just remember it vividly and well. You can recall every single word you uttered uh, in that conversation. Uh, but, but let me ask you this. If we were to kind of go through that process again, we're asking you that question today. What, what, what is the good news of Jesus Christ? Can you share with me the truth about Jesus what, what would you say? How would that go? What, what I'm trying to suggest here is that we shouldn't get out of practice of expressing our knowledge of the truth. We should remind ourselves of the truth that we know by, by regularly preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to ourselves, reminding ourselves that we're sinners and yet we're saved by the grace of God through what Jesus has done for us. Make it a habit of reminding yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ reminding your brothers and sisters of what you know and believe, maybe maybe write it out. Uh, write some scripture verses down that you'd like to include when when you need to remind yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ or to others. Perhaps uh, pick up a copy of Two Ways to Live. This is this little uh, gospel pamphlet that we give away. There are more than copies of the other pamphlet I, I showed you earlier, so we won't run out. Uh, but this just walks through the story of of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as scripture verses attached to it. Let's remind ourselves of the truth that we know and profess to believe. Let's reveal our love for the truth by by washing ourselves in it over and over again. In verse 3, John, he brings Jesus into view. And I don't know about you, but I was struck by John's certainty there in verse 3. Just look at verse 3 again. John says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father. And from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. John wrote his first letter so that Christians would be certain of their salvation. He explicitly talks about that in his first letter. John seems to be picking back right up where he left off in his first letter. He is certain that grace, mercy, and peace will be with those who love the truth. And that this grace, mercy, and peace come from God the Father and God the Son. Why is John certain of this? Perhaps because the church is elect, chosen, and beloved from before the foundation of the world, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. In the very next verse, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says that the church has been chosen and elect in Christ so that they might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so we're right back to thinking about the church in terms of being Children. Of God, as John did here in verse 2. You know, our church's statement of faith speaks of the certainty that we have due to God's gracious election. Among other things, in Article 9 of our church's statement of faith, we confess the following We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God, according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners, and that it is the foundation of Christian assurance. Certainty. The Father's electing love and the Son's redemptive work give believers the certainty that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. So what are grace, mercy, and peace? Why is it appropriate that they come from God the Father and God the Son? Well, God's grace is God's unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. Mercy is God's compassionate withholding of the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And peace is our relationship to God, set at perfect harmony through reconciliation. There's clearly a good bit of overlap between grace, mercy, and peace. But it's so appropriate that they flow from God the Father and God the Son. It's appropriate that they flow from God the Father and God the Son because the Father plans to display and offer His grace in His Son. The Father is able to show mercy and compassion through the Son. And because the Son has established peace with the Father for all who believe. One believer put it like this. Grace takes away the guilt and power of sin and renews our fallen nature. Mercy relieves our misery. Peace implies our abiding in grace and mercy. Notice how John includes himself there in verse 3. You see he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from the Father's, Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. John includes himself there. If the first readers of this letter were in any way nervous, perhaps by some of the false teaching they were hearing, these false teachers they were meeting with, they could read verse 3 and say to themselves, the beloved apostle is certain of God's grace, mercy, and peace toward us. And we should be certain too. Christian, if you struggle with doubt, with Fear, listen to John. Learn from John. And let him lead you to certainty as he leads you to the work of God in Christ on your behalf. Your certainty does not come from within you, but from within the love of the triune Godhead, displayed in history through the work of redemption accomplished by the Son and applied by the Spirit. The certainty of your salvation does not come from within, but from without. It comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. John closes this greeting with the words, In truth and love. Those are the theme- There are those themes again, these themes that are going to appear and reappear in this letter. Because we are recipients of grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and God the Son, truth and love ought to be present and perceivable in our lives. It was John Stott who wisely said, Our love grows soft, if not strengthened by truth. And our truth goes hard, if not softened by love. Scripture commands us to both love each other in the truth and hold the truth in love. Truth and love. These are the twin themes of this letter. John mentions them in the opening of his greeting and the closing of his greeting. And having considered John's greeting, let's turn now and consider John's request. See if you can spot John's request there in verses 4 through 6. Let me read 2 John, verses 4 through 6. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the very beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. That we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning. So that you should walk in it. Before we receive John's request, we receive John's joy. John expresses that it gives him great joy to find some of the children walking in the truth. It's a great way to describe the Christian life. Isn't it walking in the truth? Walking in the truth conveys the idea of, of moving forward. Going down the path of righteousness and truth. Walking in the truth must mean walking in God's ways. Because walking in the truth, as we see it there at the end of verse 4, is commanded by the Father. Did you know that, Christian? Did you know that you are commanded to walk in the truth? So when you wake up tomorrow morning and you want to know, how does God want me to live today? Right there. God wants you to walk and live in the truth. I want you to walk in the truth. Just remember 2 John 4. Believers are commanded by God to walk in accordance with the truth. And in particular, the truth about Jesus. When confronted with with dark and sinful thoughts, remember that walking in the truth means thinking on God's truth. When tempted with sinful deeds, remember that walking in the truth means doing that which accords with God's truth. And the deeds of Jesus that we see displayed in His life. When tempted to speak sinful words. Remember that walking in the truth means speaking as the one who is the truth would speak. Speaking as Jesus speaks. Walking in the truth brought John joy. And it undoubtedly brings every pastor joy. It brought me joy this past week to see some of you walking in the truth. Walking in the truth brings pastors joy. You know, I meet a number of members, as many as I can throughout the week, uh, and, and this week during one of my meetings I, I was filled with joy as I do with, with most meetings I conclude by asking so, so how can I pray for you this week uh, when I asked that question one brother expressed to me that he wanted to be more deliberate about his witness in his workplace that he wanted the things of God to be more readily available to his tongue in his conversations with his co-workers hearing his concern for his co-workers and his desire to honor Christ with his life and his lips brought me great joy it's a joy to see him walking in the truth and wanting to speak the truth. Now, if you're reading verse 4 closely, you may be sobered by that word, some. John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Perhaps you read that and wonder, so some are walking in the truth? Does that mean others are not? Are things so bad at the church uh, that, that only some are walking in the truth? How could John rejoice in such a situation? Well, I think John, what John is referring to here is probably just his personal experience. It, it seems possible that John had been visited by some of the members of, of this particular church to whom he's writing. I think that John may simply be referring to some of those members who have come across this path. And he's been filled with joy that they've been walking the truth. If you, if you remember, just a minute ago, I said that this past week when I had the privilege of meeting with some of the members of the church, I was delighted to find them walking in the truth. Simply because I say something about some members of the congregation doesn't mean I'm saying something about the other members or all the members of the congregation. That's probably what's happening here. I think John is simply referring to some of the members who have come across his path and he's been filled with joy that they've been walking in the truth. Perhaps he sent this letter back with them. Who knows? Also, we know from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, that those who do not continue walking in the truth walk out of the church and so reveal themselves to have not been children of God to begin with. After John expresses his joy that some believers in this church have come across his path and that he's delighted that they've been walking in the truth just as they were commanded by the Father, he then turns to his request in verse 5. Now this is interesting. Here John is simply and tenderly asking the church to love one another. He says, Dear Lady, I, I ask you. That's John's request. I, I ask you to love one another. He asks the church to love one another. And do you see how John is holding these ideas of truth and love in, in, in both hands, really, together? He delights that they're walking in truth, and now he gently asks them to, to love one another. You know, when we're introduced to John, this apostle in the Gospel of Mark, we learn that. Uh, he, he's given the name Sons of Thunder. He's part of this, this, this pair of brothers. He's a son of thunder. That may be suggestive how, how John was zealous. Uh, perhaps John had the kind of personality where he thought he'd take the world by storm. Maybe he, he went around thundering around and getting things done. That may have been a, a, a family instinct. Uh, for in Matthew chapter 20, we learned that John's mother uh, impetuously asked Jesus... Uh, to give John the privilege of sitting at his side in the kingdom of heaven. She kind of thundered up to Jesus and said, all right, so I want my my sons to sit on your right and your left. John's tender request here makes me wonder if something has happened in his life or if he's met someone who changed his life. This son of thunder doesn't stomp up to the church and demand that they love one another. John's making a request tenderly and gently. John is an apostle. He, he could have issued a command. But notice, he's making a request. In this request, are we seeing something of how the truth and love of Jesus has so profoundly impacted John's life? Those in position, positions of authority sometimes need to give commands. But if they are leading well, if they are leading with Truth and love, they usually don't have to make demands or issue commands. When those in authority lead with truth and love, often all they have to do is ask. You know, reflecting on John's request has challenged me to reflect on my own words this past week. Let me tell you how. You know, God has entrusted me to me various relationships in which I have some authority as a husband. Father, boss, and pastor. Ask myself, do, do commands dominate my vocabulary or requests? Uh, when, you know, a, 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 so let me just say it again. I've already said it, let me say it again. I, I don't think that it's sinful or wrong that, that all commands are sinful or wrong. The apostles will very often give commands in the scriptures. But, but I think we ought to reflect. Am I leading and loving in such a way that for the most part only requires a request? Is my wife happy to submit to a request because I've led in love and shown her that this course of action is for our good? Are my children willing to obey my request because they have come to trust that I make these requests for their good? Are my employees open to my requests because they see how pursuing a certain course brings good to them and to the congregation that we serve? When the elders and I ask you as a congregation to pursue a certain course of action, are you willing to follow because we've proven ourselves to be trustworthy men who want God's glory and your good above all else? I hope so and pray so. Perhaps take some time to think about the various relationships and spheres of authority that the Lord has entrusted to you and ask yourself some of the same questions. Have I exercised my authority in such a way that those under my care are ordinarily, normally, happy to respond to a request because I've walked in truth and love before them? In verse 5, John simply asks this church to live out an old command. The command comes from God. And it is simply that they love one another. Notice how John goes on to explain it in verse 6. In verse 5, he asks the church that they love one another. Then in verse 6, he tells them what love for one another looks like. Love for one another looks like walking according to God's commandments. This is the commandment that has been present from the beginning. To love one another by walking according to God's commandments. Notice here that John is bringing out another commandment important theme related I think to truth and love and that theme is obedience what good is truth if it is not paired with love and practiced in obedience John's statement that this command is a command that they've had from the beginning is, is reminiscent of his writing in his first letter he said in 1st John chapter 2 verse 7 beloved I'm writing to you no new command but an old command that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And then he turns around, just a verse later, and he says, and at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. I love the way John writes. Uh, as in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, here in 2 John, John seems to be talking about God's commands to love our neighbors, and in particular, especially, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we can see how this is an old commandment in the sense that it was proclaimed long ago in the Ten Commandments, which is why we read the Ten Commandments earlier in the service. Christians have long recognized that the second half of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 through 10, can be summarized as commands aiming at expressing love for others. Uh, The Puritan divines and our Baptist forebearers recognized that the Ten Commandments not only contained prohibitions, but also proscriptions. In other words... The Ten Commandments positively enjoin upon us acts of love. You can see this in some of the catechisms of the Christian church. So for example, in the Baptist Catechism, published by the Charleston Association in 1813, which follows the Westminster Shorter Catechism fairly closely, it has this to say about the Fifth Commandment. So these catechisms, they ask a question, and then they give an answer. Uh, So the catechism asks, what is required in the Fifth Commandment? fifth commandment is honor your father and mother so this is how it answers the answer the fifth commandment requires the preserving and honoring and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors inferiors or equals so i wonder if you see how christians in days gone by viewed the ten commandments in a more holistic sense containing not only prohibitions but proscriptions The fifth commandment doesn't merely teach us that children should honor and obey their parents. It also teaches us about the very nature of authority. That good and right authority is to be honored and obeyed. So do you see how keeping the fifth commandment with all of its implications is loving. And how it even reflects how we should respond to God. How we should honor our heavenly Father. And this is true with all of the commandments. For their implications reach far beyond their bare words. So we we can think about the the sixth commandment. Do do not murder. Our Christian forebears understood this not merely as a prohibition against taking life. But that the command also positively enjoins upon us the duty to preserve our own lives. And the lives of others. Is that not love? The, The seventh commandment. Seventh not only prohibits adultery. But positively enjoins upon us the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, in speech, and behavior. Is it not love to refrain from degrading ourselves through subhuman behavior? Is it not love to refrain from objectifying our neighbor and guarding their chastity? Do you see how these old, seemingly rigid commands are actually commands of love? Our Christian forebears who came up with these catechisms uh, and, and made their children memorize the hundred plus questions contained in them before the age of seven were not making things up concerning the commandments of God. Far from it. They were teaching us to love by following the lead of the Lord of love. They were reading the commandments like Jesus was reading them. So, so just keep your mind fixed on the, the seventh commandment, for example. Do you remember what Jesus said about adultery in Matthew's gospel? In Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 to 28, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus refers to the seventh commandment and then deepens our understanding of it. It has deeper implications and applications than the physical act of adultery. Jesus points out that anyone who has looked upon another person with emotions and affections and desires which belong only to someone who is your spouse, then you've committed adultery. You've violated the seventh commandment. You've failed to walk according to the commandments. Or in the language of 2 John, you failed to love. What did Jesus effectively say was the sum of the ten commandments? In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus said that the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Loving others was certainly a commandment that the people of God have heard from the beginning. And it was no doubt a command that John was teaching his readers, this congregation, when they first came to faith in Jesus Christ. Though this command was old, first being expressed in the Old Testament, Jesus taught us and publicly demonstrated the fullness of what it means to love others. Never before in human history have we seen what God fully intended love for others to look like. And we saw the fullest expression of living out this command to love others through keeping the commandments of God in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ Jesus showed us that love was selfless and sacrificial he showed us that love was submissive to God's will he showed us that love is aimed at glorifying God and bringing good to others this is the command that we should walk in we should love one another and if you want to know what love looks like look to the commandments and look to the one who perfectly lived out those commandments for us and for our salvation. And we need to remember that we so needed Jesus to show us this love, for we have not loved in this way. And we need to remember that we needed Jesus' love for us, or we have failed to love. Friend, if you're you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower, Of Jesus Christ that if I may I'd like to speak to you for a moment friend God created you he he created you in love by love and for love God made you and and every human being on this planet in his image he made you to know his love to walk in his love experience his love and express his love but we Just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we have spurned God's love. And instead of loving God and loving our neighbors, we have loved ourselves most. We've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is rebellion against God and transgression of the law of God. It's failing to love God and love others as we ought. And just think about those commandments I mentioned a minute ago. Who here has perfectly honored their father and mother as the fifth commandment demands? Not a single one of us. We've all sinned. Remembering that the fifth commandment actually pertains to all authority, who here has perfectly honored every authority figure in our lives? None of us made it past kindergarten honoring the authority over us. Remembering the sixth commandment, do not murder. Who here has not murdered another person in our hearts through anger? Jesus said in, in Matthew's Gospel, if we're angry at another person in our hearts, that we've broken the Sixth Commandment. Well, what about the Seventh Commandment? Do not commit adultery. Do you remember what Jesus said? I read from Matthew's Gospel a few moments ago. Jesus said that anyone who's looked upon another person with emotions and affection and desires that only belong to someone who is your spouse, then you've committed adultery. You've violated the Seventh Commandment. I am certain that every one of us here this morning has been guilty of violating these commandments and others. And I'm certain that we need somebody who will keep them for us and love for us and live for us. We've failed to love God and love love others as we ought. And our sin is an offense against God. And because God is holy and just and good, He cannot let our sins go unpunished. You and I and everyone here need someone else to love the way God's law requires to keep the commandments for us and we also need someone to pay the punishment that our sins deserve and such a sacrifice must spring from love and this is the good news of the Bible that Jesus in love and because of love did both he lived for us and he laid his life down for us because he loves us Jesus Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And He lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He perfectly loved our Father in heaven. While we are sinful, Jesus is sinless. Jesus perfectly honored and obeyed His earthly Father and His heavenly Father. He perfectly protected and preserved life. Even raising people from the dead. He perfectly guarded the chastity of others. And Himself remained chaste. He not only told the truth and walked in the truth he was the truth Jesus was perfectly innocent and yet in love he died on the cross bearing the punishment due to sinners like you and me and three days after his death God raised Jesus from the dead vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight Jesus' life and death was the greatest display of love that the world had ever seen. And He calls us to receive the benefits of His love. He calls us to become God's beloved, those who are loved by God, by turning from our sins and placing our faith in Him. He calls us to receive the grace, mercy, and peace He purchased. And this is how we become children of God, who walk in the truth and love, by believing in God's most beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by believing that He is our all-sufficient Savior, by turning from our sins and placing our faith in Him. And if you want to know more about what it means to be loved by Jesus and that Jesus demonstrated His love for us in His life and death and resurrection, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news, what it means to be loved by Jesus and to love Him in return. As we conclude, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want us to think on this love and on this urging from John that we walk in the truth and live in love by keeping God's commands. Let us remember that Christ has purchased our salvation and let's remember that though we face new challenges in our day, how should we love now today? Though we face these new challenges, we are called to live in precisely the same way that John called first readers of this letter to live. Maybe there are new applications, but there is not a new way to live We are called to live in such a way that demonstrates that we are recipients of God's grace, mercy, and peace. We are called to walk in the truth and to live in love through gratefully keeping God's commands as transformed and deepened by the Lord of love, by Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.